A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Today, I have returning to the podcast, Professor Shane O'Mara of Trinity College Dublin, Professor of Neuroscience, Professor of Experimental Brain Stuff. What is what is your exact title, Shane? Uh, professor of Experimental Brain Research. There you go. There you go. So it's, it's all neuroscience-y, brainy stuff, which is just fantastic. And we've had several conversations with Shane already on this pod, so it's great to have him back. Many, many thanks to you, Shane, for giving us your time. It is, as always, much appreciated. I've got a few things on my list that I would like to chat with you about today. As always, it's going to be one or two things about what you've been writing about recently, always on your blog, Brain Pizza, thoroughly recommended uh, by both myself and Jim. Do take a look at it, please. And an oblique reference to some contemporaneous events, but we'll, we'll hold that towards the end. One of the things that we've talked about with Shane before, and I'd like to get into a little bit more today, is Shane's, correct me if I'm wrong in this description, please, Shane, you are an AI skeptic. Is that a reasonable description of your views? And that's an important topic for today, because in London, as you probably know, as we speak, there is a big AI conference sponsored by Rishi Sunak. The vice president of the United States has been speaking about it, particularly about the dangers of AI and the awful bad uses that it's already been put to. Vice President Harris has been talking about the harms that AI has already done and the potential harm that it can do. But we've also got Elon Musk in town. We've got a whole host of tech bros in town. And the two things I'd like to just hear your thoughts on, you've written about, are your AI skepticism in general. And in particular, all these tech bros in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, who are dreaming of the day that they can upload themselves to their washing machine, and you seem to think that they're not going to succeed. Would that be a fair description? That's a very fair description. I think I'm not an AI skeptic in the sense that I, I think the development of LLMs 
uh, image processing like uh, stable diffusion and these other tools is a signal human achievement. There's the, and there's no point in pretending otherwise. It, it is a remarkable thing that we have done. Where I'm a skeptic is really on uh, on a couple of grounds. One is is the, the proximate ground that we know these tools have been trained on data sets that uh, lead them to be biased in, in a variety of ways. And there's a, a, you know, a large number of people talking about those. A second area where I'm really skeptical, I just simply don't believe this for a second, is that somehow the AIs are going to come and Skynet us in some way. That uh, what people are doing is, is, is looking at the Terminator and reasoning backwards uh, in terms of, of what might happen at some distant point in the future. And we will all get eaten by uh, Skynet or some autonomous thing like that. And then the, the third area that I, I've just been considering in, in really some detail on, on my substack is this issue of, of depends who's lit- who you, you, you read, but this idea that somehow humans will have to merge uh, with AI and whether in principle that's even possible and whether or not the tech companies that are, are out there doing these kinds of, of or that are led by people who are interested in these kinds of things are, are doing what they're saying they're doing. So the, those are kind of the, the three areas. Uh, brain uploading and downloading is never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, um, and we can discuss the reasons for that. And I'm, I'm very happy to talk about the reasons why the tech itself will never be capable of doing what people are claiming. Well, I'd be really interested, of course, as a teenager, I read a lot of science fiction, nerdy teenagers, certainly in the UK, always read Isaac Asimov and a whole host of other science fiction stuff and I've always been a, a Trekkie and all those other ridiculous things still am to the present day and a constant trope or meme throughout that literature has been precisely this subject it's been the subject of speculation for decades if not centuries and writers have played with it and it it is an actual real dream of some of these tech guys in Silicon Valley that one day they'll be able to plug their heads into some machine and upload their consciousness, their brain, whatever the contents of the brain is supposed to be, into a machine and achieve, I guess, a form of immortality. And you don't just say that's unlikely. You just say, nah, it's not going to happen. I'd be no, really interested happen. to know where, where, because um, I want to talk about certainty in a different context later on. I'd love to know in words that certainly I can understand why that, why that certainty, Shane. Yeah, so um, we we can address this question really in two ways. One is is is, and both ways unfortunately involved talking about detail. So it's very easy to say, as as Musk does, something along the lines that we have to quote achieve a symbiosis with artificial intelligence to develop a technology that quote merges human brains with AI, so we won't be quote left behind as AI becomes more sophisticated. So. Those are the kinds of things that Musk and others have been saying. And as a, uh, somebody, I, I hate speaking uh, from authority, but I think I have to here. If you're asking seriously the question, uh, is brain downloading possible? Then I have to ask you back what you mean. And then suddenly you start to think, hmm, that's actually kind of a hard question. It is a hard question. So I can say, you know, do you mean downloading the quote genes that give rise to your unique brain? Do you mean a digital representation of the connections between the different regions of your brain? Do you mean patterns of active connections between brain cells? Do you mean an accounting of the strength of the connections between brain cells? Do you mean the soup that your the chemical soup that neurotransmitters and neuropeptides that your brain sits within? What is it you actually mean? And then you have to ask, 
what do you mean by downloading? Into what? How are you going to download the chemical soup of neurotransmitters into a computer? You can't do that. There, there, there's a step missing in the middle. There's an old cartoon about the mad scientist starts with a, a diagram up on the left-hand side of his chalkboard where he's got air and atmosphere and other things. And at the bottom, there's limitless supplies of energy. And in the middle, he's got a box that says, and a miracle occurs. And somebody says to him, you need to be a bit more specific about the bit in the middle. And uh, that's the, the problem when you think about what's going on, what are you talking about? That's the biology problem. The technology problem is also really well worth considering here just for a moment. So there are two ways of intervening in the brain. One is the Musk method, which is not unique to Musk, which is this Neuralink company. Now, he founded a company that's designed precisely for producing a Neuralink. Is that that's right, isn't it? Well, that's what they say. Um, But uh, the technology that they're using goes back to the 1940s. Adrian or Hill and a bunch of others were awarded the Nobel Prize in the 1940s for recording at the time using very primitive methods activity in in what was uh, what is called the squid giant axon because the squid has an axon which is this output from a brain, uh, its brain cell that's so big that you can see it with the naked eye. A Nobel Prize was awarded to uh, the great Irish American scientist British Irish American he's a complicated life uh, John O'Keefe in 2014. Uh, for this technology. So this long predates uh, Neuralink's existence. And and we've been doing work like this in my lab for for many, many years. What it allows you to do is to record activity. So it's like a microscope that you can point at brain cells and say, here we go, lads, this is what's going on in this brain region. So that's technology number one. The other technology is to stimulate the brain. So you can put an electrode, which is quite large. Typically, it's about the size of Something, I, I don't know if this is going to be online or not, but it's about that size. The, Shane is showing us a, a cartridge for a biro. For, exactly. It, it's a large thing. Uh, and that's shoved into the brain uh, to stimulate a brain region. Now, that's all very well and fine and dandy. And brain stimulation operations are performed all over the world, for, in particular to remediate Parkinson's disease. I give a video on, on, on my Substack of a, a particular chap who uh, shows the effect of turning off and turning on his uh, brain stimulator for Parkinson's disease. Now, Musk's technology involves recording the activity of brain cells. Now, let me ask the hard question. If it is about the recording of brain cells, how is that doing anything for merging AI with brain cells is concerned. It's taking signal out. It's not putting signal in. And the claim is around putting an AI input to the brain, not recording the output from the brain. And and you, you can say that this is a, a specious difference, but it's actually it's not. It's fundamental. Uh, one is like taking a microscope and viewing what's going on uh, and then pretending that you can use that microscope for some other purpose. Uh, that's not what's happening. What you're just doing is merely observing the activity of brain cells. So there's a different technology required, and that's a stimulation technology. And that's not what Neuralink does. Neuralink is a microscope. It allows you to look at, at brain cells. And you can't combine these because the electronics don't allow you to. If you put 
an electrical stimulation through a stimulating electrode that you're trying to record from, you'll blow all your amps. <laughs> so it, it, it's not going to work. And then you have to ask, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm going on at a little bit of length here, but you have to ask what, let's pretend you can put a, an array of stimulating electrodes into the brain. You have to ask, where are you going to put it? What brain system are you going to put it into? And then what's your input? Is it the gibberish that ChatGPT puts out? Why would you do that? And then there's another issue, but I'm going to stop talking because I think actually it comes to the heart of the difference between how a brain works and how AI works, which I'll, I'll, but I know you're gasping to get in there. Well, <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine first, I don't know if I can, how Elon Musk would respond to all of that. So I'm, I'm not necessarily telling you what I'm thinking, but I'm trying to put myself in Elon Musk's shoes. And he'll say, okay, professor, you've just described a lot of the issues around the technology that I'm trying to develop. And you're very certain that I'm not going to succeed. But at any similar primitive state of technological knowledge in the past, anything that we eventually ended up with would have looked like magic to somebody at the time that was perhaps not even thinking about where it was going to end. And that an awful lot of the things that we take for granted today, the devices we carry around in our pockets, just to our grandparents, maybe even our parents, would have seemed like magical, impossible to imagine devices. And there would have been a whole host of reasons why it couldn't be done. And it couldn't be done, as been said many times through technological history. And that what I am trying to do is to build a robot that when asked a question, when presented with a situation, social or otherwise, when uh, faced with a problem, when, in, when stimulated in some shape or fashion, will respond in exactly the same way as the real Shane O'Mara would respond. And that's what I mean by creating uh, my own avatar. Uh, and, and so it's, it's almost a question of belief in technological progress. Is it right, Professor, that you just simply don't believe that we will ever gain the technology necessary to solve the problems that you have so skillfully described? Or is there something else going on here? You, you've been much more generous than uh, you should be because he deliberately says it's a symbiosis between AI and uh, the human brain. So that means you have to open the skull up, you have to put electrodes in there, you have to kill brain tissue when you do that, you have to incur the risk that you're going to die as a result of neurosurgery, which is not a small risk, and you have to decide what brain area that you're going to do this for, and you're doing it to defeat a problem which is a category error. He says that the big problem when you look at humans is that the our sensory channels, our eyes, our ears, the skin and all the rest of it, work at a very low, uh, or work with very low bandwidth and you can't transmit much. And that's correct, actually. So let, let's concede that. But the reason it's correct is because our brains are designed not to need input. Um, <laughs> and this is really what's forgotten all the time. So one of the, the remarkable discoveries of the last kind of 20 or 30 years from brain imaging is this idea. You've heard of dark matter in the universe. Uh, well, uh, we refer to the issue of dark energy uh, where the brain is concerned. And what it turns out is very simple. The brain needs almost no input in order to generate the amazing phenomenal experience of consciousness that we have uh, because its own intrinsic activity does that for it. So if you look at the connections of a single brain cell, 
uh, it makes somewhere between five and 25,000 connections with other brain cells. So when you close your eyes and we image your brain, what you see is not the brain stepping down in activity. What we see actually is the brain stepping up in activity. A sensory input actually reduces activity in certain brain regions. Uh, and when you close your eyes, you get this much uh, greater loop of activity going on. And the, the reason our brains are designed like this is they're remarkably energy efficient and they don't need much input because evolution have sculpted them in this kind of way. Now, if you look at the, the models that are, have been released of ChatGPT and these kinds of things, I've, I've, I've put images of them up on, on my, my Substack, and you compare them to what we know about the connectivity of uh, a little piece of, of brain tissue, they are completely different. ChatGPT needs all the data in the world. The human brain needs almost no data. In order to learn to speak grammatically, all you need is a little bit of experience of a language community at the age of two. Boom, you're done. Um, whereas ChatGPT uh, needs continual input from the outside world all the time. And we know that when it starts to eat its own input, uh, it poisons itself. Whereas when we eat our own input, we create great works of art and literature and science. Yeah, you wrote about the way in which these uh, large language models, these LLMs, have been disappointing, quite frankly. And I can echo that in terms of my own personal use. I, When I first discovered these things about a year ago, I was evangelical in my praise for them. But I have been using them in anger uh, for various purposes over the last year. And I found them, in some contexts, useful and in others, very, very wrong. They just produce the wrong answer. They do strange things. And so I'm now much more skeptical than I was. Uh, I think that we're only in the foothills of this. I hope that they're just going to get better. But as you say, they in some cases, they seem to be degrading rather than going forwards. Yeah, I think but model I, collapse is a real phenomenon. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And humans um, have figured out how to poison conventional text-based AI by injecting text into it, uh, which can drive it uh, nuts when you're doing screening of all sorts of documents. And we've also figured out how to poison uh, image processing AI um, so that it misperceives dogs for trees and things like this by... Uh, 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 so uh, so I, I, will, I will go back into the shoes of, of Mr. Musk and say, all you're describing there again, Shane, are just the teething troubles of, of a very young technology and... The, the rules of technological progress are such that we will solve all of these things. But again, still in those shoes, I want to go back to a couple of things that you said there. And in particular, you slipped in a very, very important word, Professor. Remember, I'm speaking as Musk now, not as Chris Johns. You used the word consciousness, and it was almost as a given that there is such a thing. Now, philosophers and scientists have been wrestling with this thing, consciousness, for a very long period of time. What is it? Does it even exist? And my whole thesis of being able to upload myself to a machine or download, whichever way you want to look at it, is that this is just a technological problem, that the processes that you rightly describe as being incredibly complicated and depending on all sorts of chemical soups and neuron connections and all the rest of it, they are incredibly difficult to describe, to, to replicate, uh, to do anything with, actually, to understand. But they're just technological problems. This idea that there is something more than just a chemical soup and a collection of brain cell connections is a nonsense, and that nonsense is the idea of something separate from that called consciousness. This is a technological problem, a very complicated one, that eventually time and resources and my genius will be able to solve. 
So you use the word separate from, and I would use the phrase dependent upon. Okay, here we go. <laughs> it is a, a very important uh, distinction. And I would also say uh, uh, what you've actually done is, is uh, create uh, what uh, Chalmers refers to as a philosophical zombie. Uh, uh, it's all darkness within, even though it looks like it's something from without. Um, and uh, maybe you'll do that. Um, you know, like I joke in, in the class, the one class I teach on consciousness, uh, that actually the, the issue of consciousness is very simple. Uh, nature has designed us so that it turns it off every night for eight hours and turns it back on in the morning. Uh, and it does that eight billion times uh, <laughs> every day. And it does it for cats and dogs and uh, all uh, motile but not sessile animals. Um but we, we know in the case of consciousness, for example, that if you look at impairments of consciousness, you know, so if you take states like uh, persistent vegetative state, uh, which is always a, a big issue often in courts and other places to determine um, whether a person is conscious or not. Um, if you do like for like uh, comparisons of lesions to the front of the brain from head injuries and to the back of the brain, what you see is that one's associated with the back of the brain are associated with impairments of consciousness, whereas ones to the front of the brain are not. Uh, so we know that consciousness depends on something to do with your brainstem, inputs that uh, pace uh, arousal and wake sleep cycles, and involve the integrity of these structures at the rear and not these ones at the front. You can lose probably half the front of your brain without it making any difference to your experience of phenomenal consciousness. It will do other things. You won't be a nice person to be around. Um, you won't be able to control your temper. Um, uh, you won't be able to understand that other people have minds that are worthy of, of consideration and those kinds of things. So uh, does consciousness exist? Of course it does. If, if you say to Elon, don't worry about not waking up from the general anesthetic, we're going to put you under. Uh, it's only consciousness. You're not going to miss it anyway. Uh, we disconfirm that point of view in a second. Um, uh, nobody wants to lose their consciousness. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Surely, what you're describing there, you're agreeing with me, Professor. I'm still Elon Musk here, is that consciousness is something, we're not quite sure what it is, but we are pretty sure, therefore, that all it is, is the result of, of the chemical soup and the connections between certain cells. It's nothing more than that. And therefore, it is just a technological problem to solve. And I can, after I've solved those technological problems, create consciousness. Um, oh, well, you see, that's an interesting question now to, to, to throw back at you. Um, so, 
a recent technique allows, uh, I, I don't know anybody who's doing it locally, but you can take uh, stem cells and you can grow them into uh, different types of organoids, as they're called. Um, and uh, you can grow these in a dish. Uh, so you can grow a, a kind of a semi-functioning pancreas in a dish or a kidney. But it also turns out you can grow a semi-functioning brain in a dish, a so-called brain organoid or a, a retinal organoid. And there is actually speculation out there that uh, by growing these so-called biocomputers uh, in a dish that you could have some form of intelligence in a dish, are they conscious? I just don't know. Um, and that's I, the point, Professor. I'm, yeah. going to I'm going to find out. And you're, no, tell you see, you're, you're telling me that I can't. No, I'm telling you that the technology that you're developing can't because uh, it's not allowing you to merge AI with the brain. All it's allowing you to do is to point a microscope at a brain and say what's going on in that area of the brain. If you want to get an AI to interface with a brain, well, then Neuralink and recording systems like that in principle can't do it. Like they literally, it's uh, it's like as I said, you're pointing a magnifying glass at a brain region, a microscope at a brain region. You're basically listening into what's going on, and you may even decode those signals to allow something like movement uh, to overcome paralysis. And th that's a very, very worthy game, but it's not a technology that allows you to make inputs to that brain. Uh, it's certainly never going to, in principle, allow you to to. Uh, uh, interface chat GPT to a brain because what you're doing is recording the outputs from the brain. It's at the wrong end. Of the so system. my my brain interface work is doomed to failure, but my efforts to recreate conscious uh, organoids may not be. So no, your brain technology uh, will work to overcome conditions like paralysis where you're taking an output from the brain and you're connecting somebody's uh, motor cortex, for example, uh, to allow them to move a robot arm. Um, and there's been lots of demonstrations of this over the, the last 10 years in, in rats, monkeys, and in humans. Um, most advanced in the spinal cord, but uh, it, there have been other examples at, at higher levels of the brain. Um, he's not doing organoids in a dish. Um, not yet, <laughs> anyway. Maybe, you know, maybe he will. But the technology that will be required will be very, very different to the technology uh, that is being used to record brain activity. It will have to be in a technology that allows you to take an output from something like ChatGPT, turn it into a code uh, that you can then stimulate a brain region with. And guess what? We can do this already because we can read the damn outputs from ChatGPT. We're very, very good at doing that uh, already. Uh, the interface, our, our eyes, our ears, and all the rest of it. Okay, Elon has now left the room and Chris is back. And so I'm going to ask you, um, probably a very unfair question because who the heck can uh, analyze or diagnose these things at one remove? What do you think the state of Elon Musk's brain must be like at the moment? And the reason why I ask that is as a finance person because this guy bought something that was once called Twitter, today called X, uh, a little while ago. He paid up to something like $45, 50000000000 billion for it. And according to leaked documents from X in recent days, uh, from employees who have had their share options valued, it's worth something, according to Twitter's own calculation, something in the teens. So this guy, let's be generous and say he's destroyed 
about $20 billion, potentially, of his own money. <clears throat> what do you think losing that kind of money does to an individual? Uh, it, well, it would hurt me enormously because uh, I certainly couldn't afford to lose that amount of money. What it does to somebody like that, I don't know. But his behaviour is very strange at the moment, isn't it? Uh, well, you know, I, I don't follow him terribly closely uh, in terms of his behaviour, but he might send be sending out a signal to other people. Look, I'm so rich, I can afford to set fire to my money in the public square. And it makes no difference to me. Um, and actually, it becomes a bragging right for him. Uh, we we don't really know why he bought Twitter in the first place. Uh, you know, some people say he uh, uh, was forced to buy it because he refused to exercise that uh, option where he would pay a billion not to have to buy it uh, a year ago or whenever that that was. I, again, I, I don't know. He he may actually have had the express purpose of. of uh, thinking that he was going to be defending in some way uh, free speech. And he's, it turns out, actually, unmoderated free speech just drives reasonable people away. Um, I, I really, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to know. Um, he, he may find, uh, you know, in the quiet moments that the, the set of skills that he had to build SpaceX and uh, to build Tesla and PayPal back in the day are a very, very different set of skills uh, to those that are required to uh, to, to run a social media uh, platform. The, the, uh, the behaviours of rich men and women, uh, sadly, there are more rich men than women on the planet, uh, traditionally have been to uh, buy fast cars, lots of um, palatial mansions and big yachts, ever bigger yachts in the case of oligarchs and things. Um, maybe this is just the modern equivalent of how to blow your fortune. Um, yeah, well, uh, why do you buy a big yacht? It's a form of costly signaling, mm. uh, you know, because you might spend 10 days a year on the thing. It would be cheaper just to hire one. But, but what you're actually saying to the outside world is, I am so rich. In fact, you're not saying it even to the outside world. You're saying it to the other people who are in that league. I am so rich that I can spend a half a billion or a billion on this thing that's so large, uh, and I only use it uh, a couple of days a year. The, the, uh, yes, the equivalent. Maybe Musk is saying that you know, in, in, back in the day, uh, uh, people used to blow their money. Men uh, who never really grew out of their childhood used to blow their money on train sets. Um, I'm just blowing my twenty billion on my hobby, my plaything, um, which is called Twitter. Of course, this has real consequences, not least for the employer employees. Uh, I mentioned their share options, and that's the ones that's left. It's reputed that he's actually fired between 80 and 90% of the, of the headcount of that company, which has meant that all their content moderators and all sorts of different people who did vital jobs in that company have gone. And you have got the result that Twitter is today. We used to describe it pre-Musk as a bit of a cesspit. But my God, uh, you've left it. I know we've talked about that in the past, but uh, what a great decision, Shane. It is the most extraordinary uh, platform now for all sorts of varying, worrying, very worrying traits in, in, in human behavior. One such being, and this, this will be the last question that I have for you or discussion point, is that I certainly don't want to get into the politics of the Middle East. I know that you don't either. But one of the things that I observe about this particular issue and many other issues is that from the Greek philosophers to the present day, one of the things that we are taught in theory, and to many of us in practice, it happens as we get older, we realize just how much we don't know. And our 
as a result, we tend to express, those of us that acquire that sort of, let's call it wisdom of age, uh, tend to express less and less certainty. But my God, these platforms allow people who are both incredibly certain about the state of the world, whatever the issue is, and I'm thinking particularly about Israel and Hamas at the moment, everybody seems to be on whatever side of the debate you're on, very, very certain of their ground. And at the moment they encounter somebody that um, is on the other side of certainty, that they become incandescent. And even when they experience something like me, who says, well, I'm just not so sure, I know really what's going on, where, why, what, or ever. And I express the classic woolly, flabby liberals doubts about all sorts of different things and and suggest that there are lots of nuances and subtleties to, to this thousands of years of history that we need to take account of, yada, yada, yada. They get incandescently angry with me. Um, and uh, I just wondered, setting up that problem, that question in that way, when we know we've been taught for centuries that we don't know very much about very much, and yet there seems to be so much certainty around. What's going on in people's brains? You, you know, when you, when you were introducing that question, uh, something occurred to me. I, I'm reading uh, Michael Lewis's book, uh, Going Infinite at the moment, on, on Sam Bankman-Fried. And there's a line in it which has really struck with me. It's been going around in my head for the last few days, uh, where Freed uh, says that he doesn't treat people as the mean of their behaviours. He treats them as the future probability distribution oh my God. of their behaviours. Um, and uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a really kind of a strange line, but in, in a way it's a really interesting one because... Uh, uh, what he's kind of getting at there is is a, a strange way of expressing what you're saying, which is that uh, he looks to the variance in in people's behaviour, which is probabilistic, and not the the mean of people's behaviour, which is not. It's a it's a it's a, a defined point with a, an error uh, around it, and uh, maybe actually we'd be all a little bit better off if uh, we tried uh, to think about people uh, with less certainty uh, uh, than we do. But uh, anyway, that's kind of getting away from your question. I, 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 I you know, he, he, when you cast your mind over history, these kinds of situations arise time and time again, um, and we see through the course of history, not least of which on, uh, uh, on this island, uh, where terrible wars have been have been fought uh, up until recently, um, and. Uh, uh, Certainty attends the uh, protagonists on both sides. Uh, but what really struck me, especially when I was thinking about the, the I, I, sorry, I don't mean to be boasting or humble bragging about my last book uh, on conversation, that one of the things that uh, made the Good Friday Agreement work was the fact that people actually had to talk to each other um, and uh, come into contact with each other. Um, and there's a hypothesis in social psychology called the mere contact hypothesis, uh, which is the idea that if people uh, uh, actually talk to each other and they brush along beside each other, we see each other's common humanity in a way that uh, we don't when we think of each other as abstractions. We dehumanize uh, the other and we invest ourselves very much in our own group. Um, uh, now, there's obviously lots of other complications going on there, but uh, I, I think there's something to that, that uh, uh, pluralistic societies that allow people to rub along together uh, are, tend to be very strong ones and they tend to 
to be ones that are have low levels of or lower levels of of uh, strife. And I, I'm thinking, for example, just to take a, a, an example from the UK, where you look at anti-immigrant sentiment, it's highest in places where there's the lowest number of immigrants, and it's lowest in places where there, there are the highest number of immigrants, uh, and it's lowest of all in London, where 30% of the of uh, the population are, are not from the UK. Um, and I, I just wonder... Um, you know, these are reasonable ways to think about how people behave toward each other. And maybe we should really be thinking about how we facilitate interaction rather than division. I know that's a, a kind of a, a step away from what you're asking, but I, I, I don't think given what we know about human proclivity, that it's actually a, a, a terribly revolutionary thing to want to try and achieve sure i i have my own very amateur view on why we we strive for certainty when in my humble opinion we know for sure there i go i was certain wasn't i when we know that there is no such thing as certainty that that we are we can be fairly sure that we don't know very much about an awful lot of things uh we nevertheless uh strive for certainty i see it in my own profession when people are always asking me what do I think is going to happen next despite the fact I've told them we can't do forecasting it is just not possible etc etc and uh, I think that it stems from perhaps some form of insecurity some forms of anxiety that when we are certain we're psychologically in a much uh, happier or contented or comfortable stable place than when I think you need to be psychologically or in other ways quite strong to be able to say, I don't know. I really don't know how the universe works. I really don't have any answers or even much knowledge of the Palestinian-Israeli situation. I'm not sure how the world works. And therefore, I'm going to be very careful about what I say about these issues. Um, that's not a comfortable place to be. And it's not a pop- certainly it's not a popular place to be. And at the moment, it's getting me into an awful lot of trouble. Well, there is this really interesting notion in cognitive psychology, the illusion of explanatory depth. Uh, So if you ask people to do simple things, uh, can you cycle a bicycle? People say yes. Now, can you draw a bicycle for me, please? And uh, put the powertrain in the appropriate place. And what you discover is people can't draw bikes. Um, If you say to people, um, uh, do you know how your plumbing system works? They'll say, yes, of course. And they'll say it with a very high degree of certainty. And then then you say, can you pressurize a trap seal, please? (laughs) And immediately the knowledge goes away. We feel like we know things because we have words. But when you probe for depth, uh, it's not there. Uh, And what happens actually in in many, many cases is we rely on our social group uh, for evidence for how we should think because we actually are acutely aware within ourselves we don't know much but we're happy to go with the certainty that's expressed with the group as a a cognitive shortcut what we're what we're not going to do is to sit down and take out 20 or 30 books uh on a particular conflict um i i i always found it amazing when i lived in in the uk how people's eyes would glaze over uh, where Northern Ireland was concerned. They still uh, do. They still do, Shane. They still do. But it's, you know, you would say, but it's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, mm. And they just don't want to know. Um, but actually, the reason it's in the 
place that it's in is because of the historical path that was chosen over a hundred years. But nobody wants to know that. They just want to know, uh, <laughs> or they want to know as little as possible. Uh, and I, I think that's be- you know the people have limited cognitive bandwidth. We will go along with the judgment of our tribe or our group or our peers because in many cases that's a way of saying I don't know much, but our peers. Uh, the judgment of our group will be uh, the, the one that I will go with. The flaw in it, of course, is uh, when you have the phenomenon of uh, pluralistic ignorance, where uh, you have people who are uncomfortable with the decision that has been made, uh, and they assume that everybody else is comfortable with the decision that's been made, and there's no method to uh, to articulate that. And I, I think what social media has allowed people to do is to find tribes uh, that they couldn't have found locally before easily because you can express an opinion like the one you're you're talking about and uh, people will attack you for it but there will be people who will be supporting you for it as well so they it, it exerts interesting gravitational pulls on on people's yeah, thinking i read an interesting book recently by a by a woman who was talking about the the welcome that she received when she went down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole and the the, the feeling of warmth psychological warmth and the comfort yeah that she experienced in finding lots of like-minded people and that the complete absolute bollocks to, to coin a phrase that they were all uh, espousing. They may well have been on some level where none of them believed it, but what was important to them was that they were all in each other's arms. They were all hugging each other emotionally, intellectually and talking the same kind of stuff. And it was in, just nice is how she described it. It's really, really yeah, quite nice I, to be I, in that kind of environment. And this makes sense uh, if you consider the broad sweep of human history. Our safety was not being by ourselves. Our safety has always been as being part of a group, being part of a tribe. That, uh, you know, when you look at the kind of resource uh, difficulties we've had, when, when you look at migration, when you look at patterns of uh, all sorts of things through the past, um, the reasons humans have succeeded so well as we rely on each other so much and finding a group that you can cooperate with whom you can depend on for resource allocation for status for all of those kinds of things is intrinsically rewarding and it also makes uh, good sense i i actually I, in in my book talking heads i describe just this case in chicago in the 1950s the um and it's the the case of the seekers uh, and the psychologists who studied that group gave us the phrase, which is everywhere now, uh, cognitive dissonance, um, which is, in, in, long story short, with the seekers, they believed the world was coming to an end in December. Uh, Leon Festinger, the psychologist, joined the group. Uh, the world didn't come to an end in December 1954, and they were very discomforted by this. They'd sacrificed their lives. They'd sold their houses. They'd left their spouses and all the rest of it and eventually they decided it was because uh they'd gotten the date wrong and it was going to be january then it was going to be february and then they decided it was because they had prayed very very hard and the cataclysm didn't come um and <laughs> this is something we've seen cults of one sort or another happen all over the world and we will see them for as long as humans are on this on this earth for this reason one cult-like behavior that uh, business has experienced in recent decades, certainly recent years, has been the employ- 
the, the employment of consultancies to come and help them with all sorts of business problems. But one such, and I've had firsthand experience of this, is that these behavioral consultants come in to put people into categories, boxes, descriptions. Myers-Briggs is, is one such. And uh, to me at the time, uh, this was decades ago now, when I was being put into a two-by-two two matrix or positioned within it, I think this is just one step up from astrology. And I was intrigued to read a review of Myers-Briggs and other types of attempts by these people to put us into behavioral boxes. Uh, this particular neuroscientist from a university in the UK said we have a very technical term for this, and it was a technical term that you'd used in one of our previous podcasts, and he said it is neurobollocks. This was Joel Devlin, I believe. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yes, quite yes. possibly. I can't remember his name. At, at UCL, and he, he's quite correct. Uh, there, there's a fabulous book by Merv Emery on uh, the Myers-Briggs and where it came from, and it was basically two a mother and a daughter sat around their kitchen table 100 years ago and decided, let's invent a personality scale Fantastic. and sell it to business. And it's an enormous business. Uh, and it is, as you describe, uh, shall we say, not well-founded. Indeed. Shane, I've taken up far more of your time than I should have. We could talk all day. I was about to get into something that you wrote recently about free will and whether or not we have it. I think I should probably leave that topic for the next podcast. Professor Shane O'Mara, Trinity College, Dublin, Professor of Experimental Brain Research. Thank you very much. Everybody, please take a look at his blog, Brain Pizza, and or buy his fantastic recent book. He's written several um, about walking, about talking, and there is a fount of wisdom and just, frankly, really interesting stuff in, in all of Shane's books. So thanks very much, Professor O'Mara, and we'll speak to you again very soon. Thanks, Chris. That 